CorporalNetwork.com. This episode of The Tome Show is sponsored by Continue Magazine, a gaming culture magazine about gaming of all types. And listeners like you, thanks for using The Tome's Amazon store. Welcome to the Tome Book Club, the Tome of the D&D News Reviews and Interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related novel or book or whatever, whatever spoilers be damned in a full book club style. And our book for this month is The Complete Cobbled Guide to Game Design. We, keep, we, we probably need to update the intro, don't we? Because we don't always do novels. Sometimes it's comics, and in this case, it's not a, it's not a novel at all. It's a game design book. Right. And eventually, I'll just get us to textbooks too. Textbooks. Or are we going to spoil this thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, 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 Game design. This whole this story is going to be ruined for you. Uh, and and this book in particular is created from a series of essays by Wolfgang Bauer of Cobalt Quarterly. Uh, he compiled his essays, and then also included some guest essays from other highly experienced game designers. And he created the first Cobalt's Guide to Game Design. Then he did it all over again with Volume 2, which is a the, sort of doing the same thing, but focused on adventure design very specifically. And he pulled it all together for Volume 3, which focused on the tools and techniques of game design. And finally, it was all re-edited and brought back together into one big book, The Complete Kobold Guide to Game Design. And uh, so we read the first half of this complete collection for this month, uh, taking us just a bit into Volume 2. And next month, we'll read the rest and talk to Wolfgang about it. Uh, but before we get too far along, we should introduce our guest for this episode, Andy Meyer. Hello, everybody. You're just a, a regular fixture on the book club episodes these days, aren't you? That is my devious plan. <laughs> Pretty soon, uh, I'll, I'll be able to stop doing it, and you'll just be the, the official book club host. <laughs> I was thinking you'd probably just give him his own show. Whatever he wants. Oh, well, we may have been talking about that. Yeah. Someday. We'll see. But now, uh, as we prepare for to get into the discussion, let's take a moment and thank our sponsor, Continue Magazine. They've been with us for, what, a good six months or so now, and I just wanted to express my appreciation to them for their support. They're a little magazine getting off to a great start, and the book we're reading today kind of came from similar roots with Cobalt Quarterly Magazine. The support from Continue Magazine has helped us pay some of the bills so that we don't lose money producing the podcast for all of our great listeners. So I hope everyone out there will take the time to check them out, tell them how much you appreciate their support, and maybe even go over to Twitter and tweet your thanks to at ContinueMag. For entire generations of people now, gaming is as much a part of the fabric of their reality as television, films, books, music, and any other form of entertainment medium. Continue is a magazine for the gaming community, the global gaming community. Not just video and computer games, but board games, card games, role-playing games, alternate reality games, and anything that falls into the category of humans engaging to have fun. A celebration of gaming. Everything we love about this mad entertainment sector. Continue Magazine at www.continuemag.com. And now uh, we'll talk about the complete Cobalt game Guide to Game Design, Part 1. Which is mostly game design in the first part. Yeah, uh, it was interesting because we, when we decided where to break it, I basically just looked at the page count and, mm-hmm. and found the chapter ending that would be closest to the end of that. 
Right. Which means that the first volume is by far the thickest volume because halfway through the three volumes is, what, three chapters into volume two? Right. That is correct. So it was a lot of the, the first volume, which is interesting because I bought two of the volumes uh, at Gen Con a couple years back uh, in their individual book form, and I and volume one was the one I didn't buy. So I own I actually own um, volume two and volume three, and it's worth noting for everybody that we're reading from uh, review copy. Um, so, um, but yeah, this this the first one was the one I was the least interested when I bought them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for by and large that played out as a good choice. <laughs> Not a game designer, are you? Well, I felt like as I got into it, so much of it was very like high philosophy and art mm-hmm. discussion without a lot of discussion of like practical tips of what to do and how to do it. Like the first half of it was very high minded, and, and largely when it did give advice, it was largely like the same advice said different ways over and over and over again. Right. Um, whereas the second half, uh, and it started with one of the, the guest um, essays, um, I thought was, was really good. And then after that, uh, it suddenly got a lot more practical. So the, the second half to third, I thought was uh, much better than the first half. Okay. I, I, think, um, I think the philosophy stuff is a good grounding, a good base. Uh, before you get to the application, you know, you know, learn, learn the um, learn the basics before you get get to the pieces of the puzzle. Well, sure, and I think I would have appreciated some of that. I just felt like it was about two two to three times as much as I as I wanted. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me because I think a couple of years ago I would have felt the same way, but I, I liked having a, a fair bit of it, and I did. I did like. I mean, one of them is the combat systems, which I think is probably where you're talking about. Where later on they gave much more practical advice, mm-hmm. like talking about how to create a combat system or magic system and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the it, it's a recurring theme: the whole process, uh, creative process, and how the ego plays into that. Um, I found interesting and good, uh-huh. <laughs> like that understanding that you have to have an ego in that. Uh, you have to believe in yourself and and believe in your ideas, but also be willing to uh, notice when perhaps your ideas aren't the best, and and take feedback and and incorporate other people's ideas too. Mm-hmm. I, I see myself going back to this book, um, what we've read so far, and rereading it over and over. I mean, if, if a digital copy can get you know torn and earmarked and stuff, <laughs> that, that's what'll happen to this. Mm-hmm. No, and, and I think I would I think I would do the same thing with some ch- some chapters, right? And I think some of that comes down to um, after a couple of read-throughs, I'd probably settle on on a set of chapters. But sure. I, I, I see myself rereading this whole thing again. Okay, I think I think a lot of my my impression of it comes down to the just the nature of what it is. Right, it's a collection of essays that were not written together. They were not originally designed to be together, and so it feels repetitive at times because it probably was right. It wasn't intended to be telling step-by-step the process of how to design a game. Um, It was intended to give bits bits and pieces of it in a series and then was put together and compiled together into into one volume, if you will. Right. The repetitiveness helps me when you're trying to learn something because because, um, as a teacher, I think you know that Mm -hmm. that you need to repeat 
the process of learning something over and over until it finally sinks in. Sure. It just wasn't stuff that I needed repeated because it's stuff, <laughs> stuff I've been it's stuff. Well, not not because because I'm brilliant. No, no, no. It's just, it's because it's the same advice I've been hearing for years. And and in fairness, this is stuff that he's been writing for years. Right. The first mm-hmm. essay was probably written, you know, a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. Uh, w- one of the things for me was because we we mentioned already that parts of this were kind of rewritten for the complete version mm-hmm. that had been in the the older one. Because uh, I'm pretty sure that the Dragon Age RPG wasn't out when uh, many the essay that referenced it was mm-hmm. had been originally written, mm-hmm. but I'm not yeah. entirely sure about that. I didn't, I didn't catch uh, right. Having those against the guest essays, which I don't think were necessarily updated, felt a little weird sometimes mm-hmm. to me. But well, and I also think that a lot of what was in Volume One was written at the age when. Um, Fourth edition and Pathfinder were still in the fairly new s- stages, mm-hmm. you know, because there's com- there's conversation about the the beta playtesting of Pathfinder and all that kind of stuff, which feels like ages ago now, right? Right. Oh, and and the whole essay from uh, Rob Hines about four E design, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting to read it now. Oh now yeah, that D and D next is on its way. Right. Well, and and, and and contrast what they were trying to go for with how people reacted mm-hmm. and and things like that. Well, and at the same time, um, and I don't remember if it was him or if it was actually Wolfgang in one of his essays, um, but there's there's a certain point where I'm I'm looking at some of the critiques of game design, mm-hmm. and and I don't know if they were specifically referencing fourth edition at that point or not. But very clearly, you could see, hey, you're talking about things like uh, decision paralysis. Which is right. what, exactly one of the, you know you could just port that over and say you're having a conversation about fourth edition sometimes, right? Uh, and then the int- the other interesting thing that they mentioned a few times is talking about the uh, assumed setting for uh, like what the mechanics are trying to say about the setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and D and D next kind of has that problem right now, that as far as we can tell, because there hasn't been a lot of information about what the setting is going to be like. Like there's the the talk about having the Forgotten Realms book, but it seems like there's the core rules are also supposed to have a setting in a way, mm-hmm. an implied setting in 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 uh, how things are set up. But we don't know a lot about that yet. Well, yeah, it's interesting because on one hand, he very rightly says really good game design, or at least one of the trends in good game design or interesting game design these days is coming in the form of. You know, uh, let's design a game where the mechanics specifically support a specific type of story, a specific type of setting, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's very much coming out of the indie um, movement, although I think you could argue 4th edition very much did that as well, which is part of why it it didn't appeal to some people, uh, because they weren't into the setting and the story that that game was telling. Right. Um, And it's interesting, though, because at the same time that you say that, you look at the most successful games... And it feels a lot like they try not to do that. You know, D&D, Pathfinder, those are the games that are trying to be very broadly appealing to and, and apply, applicable to multiple settings or modifiable to, to lots of settings, you know, um, that, you you know, they oftentimes give some sort of implied setting. But I really feel like they think of game and, and mechanics first uh, and then figure out setting later. At least they they traditionally have if 4th right. if edition is maybe the exception. Right, and also just considering that the the GM would probably uh, decide what their setting is and pull the pieces in that fit that setting. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
like with the the kitchen sink approach of D and D, and even to some degree Pathfinder. You know, if Gunslinger doesn't work in your 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 Pathfinder world, you just don't allow that class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they still like it's still useful to design the Gunslinger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was going to mention that how, how a lot of the essays seem to kind of dis- disparage and, and personally, I think rightly so, the, the kitchen sink approach of, of old, and um, focus more on a, a more more focused, uh, drawn-back design. I think one of the essays even says that, that um, a DM is served better by explicitly limiting that the classes and races that their players mm-hmm. can choose from. Right. Yeah, which is interesting because it was, as I'm reading some parts of this, and I think this, again, comes back to the nature of this being a collection of essays rather than a, a book that was intended to be written together as a book, in that sometimes he wanders off from game design significantly. Like that bit that, bit that you were just talking about is great advice, but that's DMing advice, or at best setting design advice. But it's not game design, <laughs> right? Well, and actually, that's one of the reasons I've always recommended these books, even for DMs, is that there's a there's a fair bit of of DM advice in here because mm-hmm. DM DMing in a way is a game design. Sure, and there's a lot of world design conversation both in the end of uh, the first volume and into the second volume where they talk about adventure design. And I, right. and I haven't read any of the third third volume yet, so I don't know what's in there. Writing, pitching, and publishing. <laughs> Just to spoil that for you. <gasps> Dang it! Spoilers! Well, what's the point? Now I'm not going to read it. You, you, uh, you told me how it ended. Yeah, and I think oh, I'm trying to... So one of the things about the the book is it, it reveals, uh, I think, Wolfgang's roots a lot. I mean, he's a mainly done D&D stuff. He did a lot of Planescape stuff, too, but within that realm of almost the medieval medieval time period and stuff and i saw quite a few references of like you know you should uh pulling from that's good because it helps players because they they uh they know it and there's a bias there in that you're assuming that the players come from that background Mm -hmm. or that the people reading the book are coming from that background that i found interesting in a book that's supposed to be about generic uh like more general game design sure i just wanted to point out that it is a bias although although really bad but although that is interesting because in my mind not only not only did he do general D&D stuff, but he also, but, and you mentioned he did, uh, was it, Planescape stuff. Right. Uh, but in my mind, what I oftentimes remember him for first was his work in Al-Kadim, which is Middle Eastern in flavor. Right, but that's also still tied to uh, to Europe, right, in a way? Mm, it's very Arabian, Persian, okay. Persian in, in, in flavor. Right. It happens to be in the Forgotten Realms, but it's sort of the, the Persian, Ar- Arabian area right. of the realms yeah. it's a subsetting within the setting right yeah no and and i i totally do that i just mean that there's a there's a tie into like a lot of europeans will still oh, yeah. know some of that stuff but not necessarily all of it because right. a tie into the i thought to the crusades and stuff like that but i could be wrong like oh yeah I, I, in, in the time i, I played the Al-Kadim Al-Kadim setting is accessible in a way that something like the mastica setting wouldn't be right Maybe. I was just saying, like, if somebody if if somebody picked up this book uh, and tried to do game like the word game designer from Japan, uh-huh. uh, they might they could feel kind of like what? But you know, why should I concentrate on medieval Europe sure. when I am from Japan and that's my my ancestry? Well, and interestingly, I I actually found that there were times reading this book that it very much felt like he was speaking to and for an American audience. Like if, right. you're, if you're going to game design for Americans, here is how you should do it. If you're game designing for other cultures, 
maybe you should talk to somebody who game designs for those cultures, you know? I, I got right. that strong impression too yeah. a few times. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, and, and there, there's nothing wrong with that because most of us are, you know, I mean not most, but many of us are Americans. And it's cool. It's fine now that bias too. And, and and people who are, who are involved in in this style of game design. I mean, he's you get. I mean, his background is very definitely a certain kind of game, right? He he's done D and D. He's done Pathfinder. Um, you know, this is what Wolfgang does and where his expertise lies. Um, and so, at the same time, those those types of games do have a world worldwide audience. So I imagine people from those cultures and and. I would encourage listeners to to email in or phone in or or join us on an episode to, to let us know. But if, I would assume that those audiences that are international are used to seeing that bias in there and and have just sort of come to come to you know figure out, <laughs> figure out how to work with it. Uh, so I know a few designers from like the UK and other places, mm-hmm. and they get kind of grumpy oh, yeah? um, about the perpetual US bias. Sure. It doesn't mean that the U.S. bias is, is wrong or anything like that, but somebody who uh, may be from another area of the world may want to know about the bias before they read it, and that's all I was trying to say. Uh, that That is important, and, and it also brings out the idea that, hey, I'd like to see something like this completely develop from a different bias. I think if I were of a different bias, I might be interested in in hearing more about, about this sort of thing from that other perspective, uh, and I might be interested in... in tasting some of that but i don't know that i need a full book of it because turns out uh i'm american <laughs> so i'm fairly comfortable with the american bias oh yeah no totally the fresh ideas though could um help influence a, a influence a game design process yeah no that, no that um is rooted in, in what we're used to but mm-hmm. brings in elements that that are vastly different than that, that that's i believe at least one of the essays mentioned that that bringing Stuff in from the outside is probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, and and I, and I certainly wouldn't. I mean, I'd be interested in. it. I just don't know that I'd want a whole book about it. You know, <laughs> just because I'm not from that culture, and it would be harder for me to get into. I imagine. Yeah. Um, but I'm also a history teacher and and a world history teacher at that. So I, I am always interested in in the perspective of other cultures. Cool. So, uh, large, popular, published settings—the settings that everybody loves—are horrible. Yeah. Go. Oh, that they're they're aimed towards the greatest common denominator, right? And thus are horrible. Absolutely. <laughs> he comes out pretty harsh against uh, what Forgotten Realms and Eberron at one point. Yeah. And I agreed with him almost a hundred percent at that point. I was right with him. Although, although I found it interesting, because um, first of all, he he talks about how these big kitchen sink sort of settings um, aren't very good and then within a few chapters completely contradicts himself says that they're fantastic for these things and acknowledges that he that he's contradicting himself from earlier like he, think, he totally well, what up he's to saying it. they're they're not very good for is that they really water down the the fantastic fantastical elements that that could draw somebody in they they, they diminish the uh, like the the one ring in um in Lord of the Rings, you know that that's one fantastical element that's really kind of the center point of the world. But you just don't get that in a kitchen sink world like Forgotten Realms or Eberron. And, right. and, and then the fantastical things become mundane, and you, and you kind of have to escalate everything to 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 bring the interest back. Yeah, and I get that. And on the other hand, um, 
when you have such an incredibly focused and narrow setting, to a degree, that starts to feel very um, fabricated to me. Because that's not how existence works. Existence is very diverse and very varied and has, uh, to, to repeat m- myself. Um, <laughs> and, and, but it, it just has so much stuff in it and it's so different and it makes, you know, in a lot of ways, a kitchen sink sort of setting seems like a catch-all in order to be able to do whatever you want. And on the other hand, it seems a lot more realistic, uh, and it, a lot of it depends on how it's handled and how it's run, at, and then you know that's a DM thing. It's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to design Great. for that. Okay, well, I, I think that it be, it becomes an argument for: Are you going to play the same game always forever, or are you going to break it up and play a little bit of this and a little bit of that? Mm-hmm. And, and if you're going to play one game the same game forever, then then a kitchen sink is probably better. Whereas if you want kind of a, a focused story around a certain paradigm mm-hmm. then, then maybe you play a little of this and a little of that and and in my head when he was discussing these things the, the place that i started going i started writing my own advice articles in the middle of listening to his right is sort of in reaction and that you know i think and, and, and admittedly i'm biased because i'm a big forgotten realms fan right um but i feel like a good whether it's adventure designer or dm can very easily take a kitchen sink setting and find a focus setting within it. You know, okay, so you've got this large kitchen sink setting, but you're going to tell a story about this village. That's your game setting. It happens to be in this larger world, but your setting for your story is in this one spot, and we can tell a focus story doing it that way. And there's no reason you can't do that. And and. and- I think the argument he was making in that situation is that, and in rolls the party, and and one member is a, a dragonborn from Karatura, and another one's a halfling from Mastika, and another. And you but got that, all but that, these different. But that just, that just goes back to the advice of, as a DM, it's not a bad idea to limit player choices. And I found as a player that that that's always a good spur for creativity, anyway. You know, whenever I'm I'm limited on my choices, that means I have to find creative ways to to express myself other than the unusual races that I've picked. Right on. So, there you go. <laughs> it's interesting uh, con- contrasting a lot of that with uh, how things like world b- building in Dresden Files works, where mm-hmm. everyone builds the world together and you you reach consensus together and you decide a lot of those things yourself where so you're not limited uh, mm-hmm. but yeah sorry no, no that's great all right what else is in this book uh there's the part about he talks about the pathfinder beginner box a little bit and and also how the thick books both for 40 and and the particularly the Pathfinder core rulebook with its 400 and some odd pages, I think that's what he said, mm-hmm. uh, can be a barrier to newer players. Mm-hmm. And that one of the things that uh, Pathfinder also did with the beginner box and Dragon Age RPG did with their box as well was uh, create those thin little volumes that didn't have all the rules but were perfect uh, for getting new newer people to try out the game. 
Uh, his argument was that the, the bigger books create kind of an exclusive club of people who have the time and, and energy to put into learning the whole thing. Right. And, and I find that interesting because it's an argument that's not new. It's been around for a long time, and people have had this conversation back and forth and all over the place, and ultimately we don't really know because that's not data that's, that can be tracked easily. Um, but on one hand, yes, I totally get that. On the other hand... I think historically, most people who get into the game get into the game through other people who already know how to play the game. Where, and he mentions that a little bit too. Yeah, and at that point, the big, thick books aren't a big deal. They're, you know, they're not a, bar- a barrier because they have somebody else that's, that's helping them out. Um, and it's very, it, it seems very rare that somebody just walks into a store and says, hey, I think I'll try out role-playing today and, and looks for a book that looks friendly to them, you know? Well, but uh, so the thing is, like, of course, we're always going to get new people in the way of somebody teaching them the right. game instead of them learning it them on their their own. But we could get, I think, the argument is we could get even more people if we made it, uh, if we did stuff like the beginner box or the sure. the Dragon Age RPG box. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I guess my point is, is that, that is that that's that's, that's all the, that's all very theoretical, right? Theoretically, um, we can, but it well, doesn't. No, that's how the hard hobby started. I mean, when I started, nobody taught me. There, there was this red box on the shelf. I said, "Oh, that looked cool. Let me get it." And and that's how a lot of people our age started this. Um, and and we now have enough of a demand that I I believe that part of Cobalt uh, Quarterly, at least the ones I've seen, have had age content in them mm-hmm. for for something that's relatively new. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, I, and I, I don't know. It's one thing to, to say back in the day, that's how a lot of people got started, and it's true. On the other hand, if I were to walk into a game store today, it's not like there's one or two products to look at and figure out what I'm interested in. Yeah. It's, it's, it's too complex, complex of, of, a, of a scenario to even consider what I might buy or what I might not buy. And, and I do agree that the majority of players these days likely are brought in by their friends who teach them how to play. Yeah. <laughs> And and in, and as somebody who's taught young people even how to how to play the game and, and all that kind of stuff, th- the way I've done it is by using the beginner boxes. You know, this is all you need yeah. to know for now. So even then, it's still a useful tool. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done. Right. And and I feel like and and this is related to some other things that I, that I've thought as we've discussed so far tonight. I feel like a lot of the advice in this book is very much aware of his audience. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of people who are going to buy the Cobalt Guide to Game Design need different advice than than people who are already in the industry. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I constantly got the feeling he was writing towards people who are thinking about doing a Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah, which well, is funny because well, this is before sense, Kickstarter. You know, doing indie game design. And, and yeah. Well, and, and the other part of that also makes sense with uh, how open design works. Mm-hmm. The, his, so, and they're combining that now, too. I think, is it Cobalt Design is going to be the new name? Uh, Co- Cobalt Quarterly and Open Design are kind of going to mix together now which if is, i recall correctly from the email i got which is funny because uh, it's, it's always been I mean, yeah it's I always mean, been a little te- technically i think cobalt quarterly was an open design publication or whatever at one point but right and and the way open design works i think they're starting to use kickstarter for some of their stuff now is that uh people pay money into uh being part of the project uh it, it people over a certain amount get to pitch ideas and it's all developed by the patrons so and that's kind of very similar to a, a kickstarter too right like right. that's how a lot of kickstarters work yeah yeah I and mean, wolfgang was doing kickstarter before kickstarter existed <laughs> right 
and so uh and so it makes sense that this is almost also like a how to be a patron in a, in an open design right and, and, and i mean and imagine a lot of the essays were basically written for that purpose anyway you know it was intended to be for the open design uh, audience and and kind of see you know because a lot of the the cobalt quarterly uh community is is overlaps with the the open design audience or uh, community i feel like that's even spelled out sure in, in some of the essays that right yeah so yeah. what what was our um our do we have a favorite uh chapter of the um 17 that we read hmm. i'm looking through the the table of contents here to see if i can pick one out i don't even think i can answer my own question i'm doing the same thing <laughs> A couple of them kind of stood out to me. The, the more empty rooms, um, yeah, made, made a lot of sense to me. I've always liked the the process of creative thought one, but but I know it might not be for everyone. Well, I was asking what's yours, not everyone's. <laughs> there was one that was a guest one that I really remember liking. There it is. The 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 combat systems one, yeah. The one by mm-hmm. Colin McComb. That's when I feel like the advice started getting very practical and I started I, I started getting some inspiration. Like I got halfway through reading our section and started designing a game just with ideas bouncing around in my head. Oh, I know a book we should read if you want to design games. More games. <laughs> I was gonna say, isn't this the book to read? <laughs> well, no, no. If you want a book that, that that's specifically going to give you ideas for, oh, sure, sure. there's a there's a short textbook that I read, uh, that I read part of where there's actually at the end of each chapter there are assignments, like they're exercises. All right on. No, <laughs> I don't know that game design is necessarily something I want to get into. It's just as we were reading it, I had some ideas and I wanted to put them on paper. Oh see, yeah. See, see what happened with it, just because I'm a, I like to think of myself as a creative person, and when I have ideas, I like to do something with them. But but this does overlap not just the whole game design, but parts of the game design too, which I think you, you may be more interested in, like the adventure design and the mm-hmm. the item design, yes. and creature design. Yeah, yeah, it does get into things. See, I feel like yeah, definitely as we get further into the this these uh, books or this book or whatever, um, it gets much more practical for just the the average DM. You know, who wants to design really awesome adventures or wants to design really cool magic items or whatever. Yeah. Oh, and the one one part the in the attack uh, combat system one, mm-hmm. figuring out the probabilities and outcomes is a section I really like. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a big thing for me. Because uh, I've always... Uh, one of the things that I often will uh, mess around with with D&D is, are those probabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I don't like it when there's a lot of missing. <laughs> it's just oh, sure. boring to me. Sure. Yeah, and, and I guess I mean, but you just have to be aware of that, right? Because maybe that's mm-hmm. maybe that's the system. Maybe you have a really deadly system, but people miss most of the time. But the times you hit, you probably killed them. Right. You know. So that and that's just a different different flavor. And that and that's go, that goes back to the like other that advice. Next a little bit too. It feels a little that way. A little more that way. I wouldn't say it goes completely that way, but it's a little more that way. Yeah. yeah, it's getting back to the one e two e more deadly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, save versus dead. Save or die. <laughs> well, so, and yeah. it's even like the diorettes, but I know we can't talk about mechanics too much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I guess, um, and there were some moments where I felt like, uh, like he, there was almost a whole chapter on the magic item chapter was almost a whole chapter on 
how to do well in the on the the Paizo RPG Superstar mm-hmm. contest, you know, um, which I found interesting because like uh, I think way back when they first started that the first or second time they did it, I had actually entered because that was you know before fourth edition was really out and moving and whatever. Um, I had actually entered into the contest at one point, and I and I designed a magic item, and then I thought I was doing something unique because everybody's going to do this this. Uh, this high combat sort of stuff, and then I read the article, the the, the essay of the chapter, and he's like, "No, that, that's what find they, out why you didn't win." Yeah, that's what they, that's what they wanted. You know, it's like really because I thought I was doing something just unique and interesting, and that per- turns out that's exactly what they didn't want. You know, so. I, I remember that chapter too, and um, yeah, it, on the surface, it, it did seem like you know the the uh, you know designer's guide to winning this contest, right? But um, yeah, I, I think there was enough there. For anybody who's design who wants to design a magic item that stands out sure. as you know interesting, yeah. Although sometimes, well, you know what? Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, I was going to say sometimes, depending on your setting, having mon- having magic items that are more mundane and doing mundane things, non combat things, is important and interesting. You know, but Eb- isn't memorable. Eberron is very much that way, mundane. right? And so, so where I was going was maybe that's really good thing to do in your setting design in your world building it doesn't have to be statted out as as a full-fledged magic item because it's just flavor exactly and i don't mean just flavor in a dismissive way because that's sort of what it's all about right it's just flavor (laughs) who wants story get your story out of my role playing well what else we want to talk about i'm really looking forward to the to the second half of it I, i i feel like um, I when I read because I read the second volume years ago and I remember enjoying that uh, so I, I look forward to getting into that and I look forward to seeing what, what volume three has has to show us. Um, I, I didn't read the second volume years ago, but I am still interested and excited to continue reading. Right on. Because I, I I did detect, like you said, the the trend towards um meteor. Here's here's the tools you need to yes. build stuff. Yes. And and I feel like part of that, I feel like everything comes together a little bit easier. And I wonder if when volume after volume one came out, they realized as we continue with these essays, they're going to be compiled together into books. So we should you know write them with a common voice and 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 organize them so that they're maybe less repetitive and a little more practical. Mm-hmm. Um, so I and I, and I as my recollection of reading. Um, volume two on adventure design was I felt like it was very digestible. You know, short little cha- short little chapters and essays that were very digestible. I can get get in one or two here and there, um, and really get something out of it, and then move on. Which is also interesting because as I went through the the other one, there were moments when I felt like they just it sort of went on a little too long on the same topic and could have moved a little faster. And then there were other moments where they were getting into examples, and I'm like, well, yeah, but you're giving us an example on how to do this, and you only halfway did it, like. <laughs> I want more of this example, so I, I'm going to contradict myself as well. There were some places I wanted more, and some places I wanted less. I liked talking. I'm talking about the different types of encounters on in the action spectrum in the challenge and response section. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. there was what um, combat was was the one that's obviously the most memorable, but but maybe in some ways I think they discussed the least important. Yeah, I had the most action. Uh, but it's the most common and most familiar type, so he right. passed over them. But then there's the the threat negotiation, which is sort of your your diplomatic social encounter mm-hmm. uh, that can sometimes lead into combat. The chase, 
the terrain and devices, the stealth. Is that it? That's it. Just yeah. to follow you. And I found it interesting because I, as I went through those, it occurred to me that a lot of those can overlap a lot too. You know, mm-hmm. chase, oh, yeah. chase, and and. Uh, threat and negotiation can very easily turn into combat. Combat can be happening at the same time as you're doing terrain and devices. You know? And I think it even mentions the overlap. Right. In one part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't forget uh, your terrain in the heat of a running encounter. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if and again, this is very early in 4th edition, right? But 4th edition, especially in the early days, was very much about sort of pushing the envelope on terms of fantastic terrain in the middle of your encounters and doing crazy things and all that. Mm-hmm. More stuff for the GM to, to keep track manage. of. And I also agree with the stuff for XP for city encounters, like all the role-playing and stuff. Because uh, he talks about how a lot of, in the history with D&D, that combat was the way you got XP. Right. Which, which is interesting because, again, I, I think that's showing... His the bias of his expertise, right? Mm-hmm. He's very much. I mean, not every game system uses experience points based on combat or experience points at all, right? But he's speaking. He's speaking about D and D and its relatives. It's very clearly. Oh yeah, because a lot of the essays because the game system because the game system I'm designing because <laughs> from my inspiration doesn't use XP. So there. Wow. So you're not going to give XP if they avoid combat. <laughs> I'm not going to give XP at all. I, I sense some fairly disappointed players with no XP. <laughs> no, not really. Because you, you, you play in my game and I stopped giving XP years ago. Yes, yeah. Yes. I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm over XP. Uh, XP works better when you're gaming several times a week. I think that's fair. Your very long sessions where like, you're leveling up every session or something. But at the same time, I, I'm a much bigger fan of pacing things with the story rather than because of the mechanics say I should. That, that's the way I prefer to run so that, stuff, too. So that's where, I, that's, that's where I've gone in my gaming style and philosophy these days. All right. Anything else we want to say? Should we uh, wrap her up? I, I think we spoiled this book enough for one night. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all we have to to spoil today. Uh, (laughs) Be sure to join us next month as we finish the book and talk to the author. And if you'd like to join us in book club episodes, all you have to do is email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com. And we want to say thank you to our sponsor, Continue Magazine, over at ContinueMag.com. Don't forget to tweet them to tell them thank you for supporting the show. They are at ContinueMag. And I also want to thank Andy. You are so welcome. Welcome, uh, joining us once again, and people can find you as uh, on Twitter as at a w m y h r. That is correct. Awesome. Anywhere else people should go to find you? Uh, you can go to a w m y h r dot com, and uh, don't mind the dust. I'll clean it up pretty soon here. <laughs> <laughs> and if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at thetomeshow at gmail dot com. Or call our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And as always, our show notes are on at thetomeshow.com. And now we're going to go out and design our own brand new game system and become the next <laughs> great game designer after all the inspiration we got from Cobalt's Guide to Game Design. See you next time.
么了哇？